Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Investor Hot Seat. My name is Dustin Robinson. I will be your host. By way of background, I am the managing principal of Eater Investments, which is an investment firm that invests in early stage psychedelic companies, including the company we have on our first episode today, Awaken. While there are a lot of different media companies that are covering the psychedelic space, as an investor, I just felt that a lot of them, or all of them, were really just not asking the questions that I wanted answered as an investor. Really the challenging questions that I feel CEOs need to be prepared to answer. So our goal here at Investor Hot Seat is to basically provide our investor audience with the information they need to provide to, to get the most educated they can to make a good decision when investing. The agenda for each episode, what we're going to do is we're going to have first, we're going to have a five minute presentation from the CEO. Obviously, five minutes is a short period of time, so it's going to be a very basic overview. Then I'm going to come in and ask about 30 minutes of questions, the most relevant questions that I think investors should be asking. And then we're going to have around five to 10 minutes reserved for questions from the audience. So if you have any questions whatsoever, you don't need to wait till the end. You can just drop them in the comments box. And at the end, I'll be sure to, um, to address those questions. Also, since this is about investing, we have a couple quick disclaimers. Um, this is not a solicitation for investment and Psychedelic Invest does not advocate uh, to invest in any of these companies. This is for informational purposes only and we encourage you to read the full terms and conditions on the psychedelicinvest.com website. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our very first guest, Anthony Tennyson, the CEO of Awaken. Anthony, I'm going to pass it to you for your presentation, and then I'm going to ask you a Q&A. So you have five minutes, and you're on the clock. <laughs> Dustin, thank you very much um, for, for having me on today. It's a pleasure to speak with you and to everyone who's logged on today. And it's also a pleasure to be kept on the clock. So awaken in the 40 minutes, uh, sorry, the four minutes and 40 seconds that we have left. And we are a biotechnology company who are researching, developing, and commercializing therapeutics to more effectively treat addiction with a near-term focus on alcohol use disorder, which is a condition that affects 400 million people globally and for which the current standard of care is poor. We do two things in Awakened Life Sciences. We do research and development, and we do commercialization. And in our R&D activity, we have multiple R&D work streams to de-risk our investment, the business for investors. We are active across three compounds and multiple addictions, again, to de-risk it for investors. We have clinical stage research and also preclinical stage research. The second thing that we do is we commercialize those therapeutics. And we are doing that through currently through two uh, revenue streams. One is clinics, and we have three clinics operational, two in the UK and one in Norway. And the second work stream is more traditional therapeutics commercialization, where we'll package up everything that we do and we'll outlicense it to the addiction treatment industry starting off in the US. We have four differentiators that really set us apart from other biotechnology companies in the CNS space in general, but psychedelics companies in particular. One is a significant market opportunity for Awaken. We have a laser focus on treating addiction. 20% of the planet suffer with a substance addiction and many hundreds of millions of more people suffer with behavioral addictions. The approach that we're taking to treat addiction by targeting brain circuits that house the behaviors that drive the addictions, that polypharmacology approach enables us to develop treatments for both substance and behavioral addictions. It is a, the single biggest unmet medical need of modern times, and the industry that is meant to be providing treatments is deeply underperforming. It's a $100 billion a year industry with about a 25 success rate, 75% failure rate. So that's the differentiator one is we're pushing, we're bringing innovative proven therapeutics to bear to a large but underperforming industry. Second differentiator is our team. We have a world leading team 
with deep, deep expertise in biotech, research, and capital markets, including a world authority in Professor David Nutt. The second, or the third, I beg your pardon, differentiator for us is our data-driven science. We have proven efficacy for the use of ketamine-assisted therapy to treat alcohol use disorder. People coming into that trial were sober 2% of the time. That's seven days a year, Dustin, people were sober. Coming out of that trial, on the proprietary arm of that trial, people were sober 86% of the time in the six months post-treatment. That is a radical improvement, leading through to a significant improvement in liver function and reducing the probability of fatality for people who drank that much from one in eight to one in 80. We have other proven efficacy as well. And the fourth differentiator for us is the significant financial opportunity we believe Awaken presents. Because of the maturity of our research, successful phase 2B, successful phase 2A, and preclinical assets, when you stack us up on our market capitalization against other companies in this industry, and indeed the wider CNS biotech space, we are relatively under, under, undervalued because of the market dislocation that's currently in place. And furthermore, we, from a financial perspective, we have de-risked Awaken more because we are actually revenue generating in our second financial year. So that's it. We've got, we've got three core activities or three, three core pillars in the business. We've got our R&D business where we're developing those combined therapeutics. That approach to treating addiction, targeting brain circuits, polypharmacology approach, using drugs and therapies in combination, that's new. So we've got a small clinics business which enables us to fine tune the delivery model for our therapeutics before we commercialize them at scale. That clinics business enables us to generate real world evidence to support interaction with regulators and also to generate revenue to de-risk awaken for investors. And once we fine tune the delivery model for our therapeutics, we'll commercialize those at scale and we'll start doing that later this year, early next year by out licensing in an off-label fashion what we've developed in our R&D business fine-tuned in our clinics business, and we'll commercialize that into the addiction treatment clinic industry in the US. And it's worth bearing in mind for the audience here that there are between 10 and 15,000 addiction treatment clinics in the US generating $40 billion a year in revenue, and they have a 75% failure rate in what they do. All right. I think your five minutes is up. We gave you an, an extra couple couple seconds, but you did a, did a great job. Great to have you on, Anthony. How's it going? It's going very well, Dustin. It's good, good to see you again. Good to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you. So before we jump into the operational questions I have, I want to spend some time talking about the stock price and the financials. The S&P index right now is down about 50% from its February peak. Uh, the, ET, the psychedelic ETFs are down about 60 to 70% year to date. Um, you guys went public at $2.50. Your stock is currently trading at about $1.20. Um, so I'd like for you to just take some time and, and talk a little bit about the stock price movement uh, relative to the rest of the industry. Indeed, happy to do so. So to put that in context, um, we went public in June of last year. Uh, we went out the gate at $2.50 Canadian. Um, in H2 last year, we were the second best performing stock in the psychedelic sector. Um, and we were actually the second best performing stock in the psychedelic sector up until mid-January. And then the capital markets and macroeconomic headwinds caught up with us. And we are down since then. But since we've gone public, we are down 40% on our go public price. I think it closed a business yesterday. That stacks up against a negative 50% for the XBI index, which is the main biotech, small cap biotech index, and against 68% against the psychedelics indices. So we are indeed down on our go public price, but over the same period, we are actually outperforming the marketplace by being down less. And we believe that we, despite this market dislocation, and um, because of our um, drop in share price, and um, we represent a significant um, investment opportunity for shareholders because of the market dislocation, because we are relatively undervalued, I believe, and that's just my opinion, um, because of the maturity of our research, the catalysts that we have coming down the track, and the fact that we've de-risked the business by having a revenue stream in our second financial year. 
Yeah, and just to add another statistic on there, the top four companies right now um, that are psychedelic trading stocks are actually down 44% year to date. So it looks like you guys are also beating those, those top four stocks as well. Um, and that includes companies like GH Research, Compass Pathway, MindMed, and so on and so forth. So with the current market conditions, one of the things that we're very focused on in our fund is ensuring our companies have proper uh, runway uh, for these current market conditions. The market is just a total mess. There is a, not very much capital out there. So it's very important you have the runway. I know that you guys recently just did a private placement. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what kind of runway that private placement gives you and what milestones you believe you'll be able to achieve um, with that private placement capital. Yeah, so that, that private placement ex extends our runway. When we went public, we had 12 months of runway. Um, and we went public at the end of June last year. Um, and so that private placement extends that runway out. Um, we are in a unique position in the fact that a lot of our significant CapEx items are, are, are completed so far, our committed CapEx items are completed. For example, our hit to lead program that was led by Evotech, the refurbishing and opening of uh, some clinics, um, and the completion of the world's first uh, study into behavioral addictions. So we have the ability to dial up and dial down activity, which gives us a bit, a bit of flexibility, Dustin. Um, but we are a biotechnology company. Um, we are looking, you know, we will always be looking to raise money. And the more money we raise, the more we can get done. And the more we, ex the, the closer, or the, the, I don't know if this is even a real term, but we can bring our milestones in clo close. We, we can reduce the timeline to execution and achievement of milestones. Is what is what I'm trying to say, um, so we're we're happy with where we are right now, um, but like all biotechnology companies, um, we are always looking to we always will need to raise more money. I'm going to press on you a little bit further on that. So specifically, what milestones will you think you, you'll be able to achieve before you guys need to raise additional capital? Obviously, you could always you know increase your budget, reduce your budget. Sounds like you guys are pretty flexible with that. But with the current capital you have, what are the milestones you guys want to achieve before you got to go out to market again? Yeah, indeed. So um, we have completed the world's first study for behavior using developing a pharmacological treatment for behavioral addictions. Um, and we completed that two weeks ago. And we announced today um, the, that the data generated from that study has enabled us to file a PCT patent. Um, on the use of ketamine, its metabolites and its derivatives to treat uh, all behavioral addictions. So what we want to do is we want to do a deeper dive onto gambling disorder, which is a disorder that affects 400 million people. And we can fully fund that deeper dive into gambling disorder. And the next step after that would be to move into a phase 2B trial for gambling disorder. So we can't we can't do that second part, but we can definitely complete the deeper dive into gambling disorder and progress us into enabling to get into a phase two on a gambling disorder with a compound that we now fully have, uh, we believe we will have a strong commercial position in. Um, second thing that we can progress is we have um, a successful phase 2B trial for ketamine for alcohol use, ketamine-assisted therapy for alcohol use disorder completed. The results were published in the American Journal of Psychiatry in, in January of this year. And um, we have a phase three fully designed. Um, typically speaking, a phase three trial of that size would cost in the region of 10 to 15 million sterling. And uh, we have partnered with the University of Exeter and the National Healthcare Service in the UK. And because of that partnership, the total ticket price for that trial is somewhere in the region of about 2.2 million sterling. And we've applied for a grant from the UK state for two thirds funding for that trial. So if we are successful in securing that grant, we can also begin and execute that phase three trial with the cash that we have on hand. So those are two key milestones. One, moving from phase 2B into phase 3 um, for a condition where we have efficacy proven, but for a condition that affects 400 million people and for which the current standard of care is poor. And the second is a deeper dive into gambling disorder, which is a condition that also affects about 400 million people and for which there is no current standard of care. Um, and around a molecule that we actually now have based upon the patterns we filed, a reasonable IP motor around. Got it. And so now let's jump into some of the operational uh, aspects of the business. So I know you have uh, two different divisions, one doing R&D, one doing clinics. Um, you know, both are very capital intensive and require a lot of focus in and of, of themselves. So you're doing both of these. And we saw when the market 
was really hot. Uh, a lot of companies wanted to do this. They wanted to have kind of this, since psychedelics are known, you know, to have the compound in conjunction with the therapy. A lot of people wanted to have the clinics that will be delivering this therapy. And when money was easy to come by, um, wasn't the, the, the worst uh, idea to have. Now what we're seeing is a lot of companies are pulling back from that strategy. Um, you're seeing companies sell off their clinical assets or spin them out. A couple examples are Field Trip and WeSana. Um, and they're really now starting to focus more just on drug development. They recognize it's highly capital intensive, requires a lot of focus. Um, and with the market being where it is, they wanted to, both those companies want to really focus on, on drug development. Very challenging to focus on both of those businesses, both the, both the R&D and on the clinic side. Um, I know you guys have not taken that approach of spinning them out. Um, so I'd like you to address that. Is is your plan to keep both of these businesses under Awaken? And if so, um, how do you plan to really execute on these highly capital intensive, highly resource intensive businesses? So um, I don't want to comment on other people's uh, businesses or business models, but for us, it's highly complementary. We are conducting research on ketamine for the treatment of behavioral and substance addictions. Ketamine is an approved medicine, and we can deliver these services in an off-label fashion in the clinics, um, enabling us to generate real-world evidence to feed into the target product profile for what we want to bring into the phase three trial and to support interactions with the regulator. Very importantly, it also enables us to generate real-world evidence to support interactions with payers. And I think that's really critical is it's the so what next that I don't think enough, pe enough people are thinking about in this industry. You can focus on getting through your milestones, your stage gates with R&D, but if you get, even when you get regulatory approval, you're not even at the start line. You might be able to see the start line, but you're not at the start line, right? You've got to start thinking about how do, what is it that you are going to bring to market? Are the payers going to be interested in you, what you bring to market? Have you asked the right question in your phase three design that it's now going to be acceptable for the regulators so that you can you can even get your marketing authorization in the first place. The clinics is critically important for us. It enables us to understand the delivery model for these therapeutics. And if you look at what we're doing to treat addiction, it's the third evolution, Dustin, in treating addiction. Um, addiction is, is the biggest unmet medical need globally. And um, the first evolution in treating addiction was talk-based therapy, which is the AA. It's admirable, but it's got a 90% relapse rate. Second evolution was something like drugs and therapies used in sequence, so something like Vivitrol. Blocker agent blocks the uptake of alcohol, increases the probability of getting through detox to enable you to get into talk-based therapy afterwards. Talk-based therapy, still based on the 12 steps. What we're doing is we're using drugs and therapies in combination to disrupt the brain circuits that house the behaviors and then bring in proprietary psychotherapy. That's new. So if we want to commercialize this at scale to fulfill our purpose as an organization, which is to democratize psychedelics, and to help as many people as possible, we need to understand how they're gonna be delivered in the real world so that when it comes to having a conversation to the 10,000 addiction clinics in the US that are generating $40 billion a year in revenue but aren't doing a bloody good job, we need to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk. And so having the clinics is highly complimentary and highly supportive for us because we are in clinical stage, late clinical stage with a compound that we can use off-label in the clinical environment. If we were only operating and doing our research on preclinical assets, no, there wouldn't be any complement across the two. But um, it's really important that we have the two together so that we understand the real world. And one just key story, I'll, I'll end this answer now, but one key thing we're learning is that the therapist is the rate-limiting factor in our clinics business, and we believe in the true scaling of this, these solutions and treatments to help as many people as possible. Um, ketamine is works well from a therapist perspective. People are only, you know, you can treat two people per day. They're, you know, eye mask on, headphone on, so it's relatively easy for the therapist. If you look at the traditional psychedelics of psilocybin, MDMA, and, and LSD, um, six to eight hours in therapy, which is quite intense on the therapist, right? If you can imagine doing that for your job, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, with different people each day, all of whom going through a hero dose, reliving some really, really difficult experiences in their lives. That's tough going. Imagine doing that for three, six, nine, 12 months. By the time you get into your second or third year of your job, you're gonna be under pressure. 
So we believe then that the therapists, in the traditional psychedelics, could lead to burnout or uh, therapists moving around the industry, lack of shortage, lack of supply of therapists, war for talent for therapists, drives up the cost. And we're understanding that because we're doing the doing as well as developing. And so for now, that works very well for us. Second thing is, it enables us to generate revenue. Each one of our clinics can generate about $4 million top line. And let's say, to make the maths easy for me today, because it's laid over this side of the water, if we have 10 clinics, that's 40 million US top line revenue for an early stage biotechnology company. And they can kick out about 25 points of margin. So that's $10 million EBITDA at a business, or free cash flow at a business unit level that I can then reinvest back into the biotechnology business annually on a non-dilutive manner. That's, that's okay. And again, it de-risks Awaken as an investment proposition for investors. Got it. You know, I think I, I agree with you that they're highly complementary. I think where the challenge is, is really uh, capital allocation, yeah. right? Where, where are you allocating capital? And I, I agree once these clinics are at their height, generating a lot of revenue, they'll be generating cash flow. But I know in your deck, you talk about opening, I think it's something like 15 to 20 clinics within the next couple of years. My question is, um, you know, if you could walk me through the financial model there, how much does it cost to open up one clinic? How long before you're break even on that clinic? And then I'd like to talk a little bit more about that EBITDA number as well, because for some amount of time as you're opening up, if assuming you're still have that 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 uh, very aggressive plan of opening up that many clinics, it's definitely going to be very capital intensive on the front end, once they're all up and running and they're back, they're breaking even, obviously then it's all cash flow positive. But I think if you're scaling up that fast, you're gonna have a lot of challenges with capital allocation. So could you walk me through some of the numbers, just how much does it cost to open up the clinic and how quickly do you expect to break even? Well, I'm, I'm just gonna say per your opening comments, this is definitely the hot seat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> these are the kind of questions that the CEO should be asked and he doesn't normally get asked in, a, in most of the podcasts. So just first thing, and I'm not dodging this question, but we are publicly traded and I haven't, I haven't given those kind of details ex externally. So I'm not, I'm not avoiding the question. I'm just gonna provide the information that I have already provided externally so as not to, to, to walk across anyone. Um, so we are not buying the buildings, we are leasing the buildings, and we refurb the buildings. Um, and so it's not like we're not deploying significant investor shareholder capital into buying buildings. That's not what we do. It's refurb. It's reasonably cost efficient. And not to get into the weeds, but there's different approaches in different locations. In the Nordics, the landlord will pay for an awful lot more of the refurb and the M&E work themselves. They will rentalize an awful lot of the refurb work. So you're not paying for it up front. UK is a bit different. Landlords are tricky buggers in the UK. But so there are ways that you can be more judicious in your use of capital to open revenue generating assets. And the question then is, what's the ramp up time? So when do you get to, to break even and to profitability? And again, we haven't spoken about that externally, but we do have good coverage from our analysts, everyone not from our analysts, but from the banking analysts. So people can look to the Stifer report or the HCW report and get an understanding of, of what the, the, the numbers mean from, from the clinics business. But as far as I'm concerned, it's right now, they're highly complementary. It supports us on generating real world evidence, a positive feedback loop between clinics, uh, clinics and research. And really importantly, it enables us for when we want to go and scale into the US that we are actually coming and talking to the clinic operators using the language of clinic operators and we have the war stories and we're walking the walk and talking the walk, talking the talk of clinic operators. And from a CapEx perspective, we are very careful in making sure that we put the capital into the place that generates returns for shareholders. And that's my job, one of my jobs, is to create value for shareholders and we're very careful in doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I think it's a good time to talk to the viewers just about saying, you know, we're going to be interviewing some public companies, which comes with its own challenges with what they could disclose. Similarly, with private companies, there's certain restrictions on what they could talk about. In addition, generally, when you're talking to some of these companies, you need to sign an NDA to really get to the true confidential information. So 
I want the viewers to all understand. I will be asking some tough questions and I will try to toe that line, but there will be instances where CEOs just can't can't answer either for compliance or confidential purposes. So let's let's move on to your R&D program. So the way I see it, you kind of have three kind of buckets of R&D programs. You have your ketamine program, you have your MDMA program, and you have your NCE program. So first I want to talk about what you're doing for ketamine for AUD. Unbelievable results. Um, 86% success rate. Compare that to the current uh, standard therapy of, I think it's like 25% success rate, um, you know, horrible dropout rate. So the results have been absolutely incredible, right? And you guys are moving into a phase three clinical trial. The problem is ketamine is, is already an approved substance, right? So you're not going to get a patent on the, the compound itself. You're probably also not going necessarily for data exclusivity. So my question for you, um, assuming you get approval of ketamine for alcohol use disorder, what is the moat for the company that would potentially stop other generics from producing it um, and basically taking up market share? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, why are we looking at addiction in general and alcohol use disorder in particular as our near-term focus? Well, I think it's everyone is by one de- by zero degrees or one degree of separation knows someone who's been affected by addiction um, and alcohol use disorder, you know, uh, in Ireland particularly. Um, and the current standard of care is poor. There's typically speaking a 75% relapse rate um, for alcohol use disorder treatments, but the market that's meant to be providing treatments is, is significant. If we take the UK alone, the NHS that controls 90% of the marketplace in the UK uh, because they are the, the National Healthcare Service and they pay for 90% of all services in the UK. They spend $3.2 billion a year on treating alcohol use disorder, and it doesn't work. Um, so what we're doing is we have uh, we have a success, successful phase 2B trial. We're working to bring that forward into phase 3. Um, it's an N equals 280 trial. Um, typically speaking, a trial like that would cost between 10 and 15 million sterling. And we're partnering with the University of Exeter and the NHS to bring that price all the way down to 2.2 million sterling, which de-risks it for investors because of the IP challenges. And we've applied for a grant from the UK state for two-thirds funding for that. So potentially, our cost for that trial will be sub-1 million sterling. And we should hope to have an answer from the UK state on that grant um, before the end of Q2 this year, so imminently. And then if successful, we'll aim for reg and ethics later this year and first patient or first participant, I should say, early next year. That is part of a plan for us to seek to secure, currently, to seek to secure marketing authorization for ketamine-assisted therapy to treat alcohol use disorder. And it is the combination of ketamine and propriety therapy that's copywritten and protected that we will be bringing to the MHRA and the UK authorities to secure marketing authorization for our way of using ketamine to treat alcohol use disorder in the UK. There are various routes available to build a further IP moat around the molecule. We have hired the former head of sales for Vivitrol, and um, former head of sales of the U for the US for Vivitrol. Vivitrol is a generic of naltraxone, and it solved a compliance problem for naltraxone, which was used to treat alcohol use disorder. People would take a pill every day. That was the dosing regime. People suffering from alcohol use disorder may or may not forget or remember to take the pill. So naltraxone put in a subcutaneous slow release, so put, put, put the naltraxone in, in a slow dissolving carbon uh, setup, subcutaneous re- uh, injections then release over a month. That's all it is, and it's just that unique delivery mechanism gives them an IP mode, and they generate their full patents, full reimbursement, Medma, or sorry, product liability insurance, full reimbursement, generates $350 million a year for Alchemies who own that brand. So we are looking at additional ways to put an IP motor around ketamine, taking inspiration from a route of administration approach. And when we know more information around that, I will be happy to come back on to sit in this hot seat yes. and provide you with more details, Dustin. We're gonna take you up on that. I actually have the same question for, for MDMA. MDMA, once again, um, it's a compound. You're not gonna file a composition of a matter patent on that. Um, and you're probably not going after data exclusivity either on your MDMA program. I assume your answer as far as the moat that you will be creating around that, similar to what you're looking to do for ketamine? 
Uh, yeah, but I, I think the uh, the route of administration is there's less flexibility around the route of administration for for, for MDMA um, because of the volume and the size tends to, well, at this stage, it looks like being an, an oral pill. But we are looking at options for that. Uh, but it will most likely be as seeking to secure on-label use for the combined therapy combination of MDMA and therapy together. Um, and then the third thing we're doing is around using ketamine to treat behavioral addictions. And we filed a patent, a PCT patent yesterday, announced it today, which if successful means that we'll be the only company that can commercially use ketamine, to treat ketamine, its derivatives or its metabolites to treat a range of behavioral addictions that affect between 800 and a billion people. So that's a, that's a stronger IP position. And then the fourth work stream is NCEs. And uh, we like ketamine, how it treats, how it works in the clinic. And we like MDMA as well. But MGMA, per the other answer I gave earlier on, MGMA looks like it might take six to eight hours to work in the clinic with a six to eight hour recovery window. Anyone who comes into the clinic later than 11 o'clock in the morning, you're looking at an overnight stay, three shifts of staff. It becomes expensive, different planning permission, different infrastructure. So we're looking to take the benefits of MGMA and make it available in a shorter treatment window. And we are developing novel compounds on novel scaffolds that interact with the known receptor sites for MGMA and further potential receptor sites that we have discovered as a team. Uh, so uh, novel compounds, novel scaffolds, interacting with known and newly discovered receptor, potentially newly discovered and effective receptor sites for MGMA. And we have completed a hit to lead program, identified two series of drug-like properties. We're just testing those in a few animal models to see which will be the lead and which will be the backup. But those are fully proprietary compounds. And the great thing about our business model is because we're working with ketamine and MGMA in the clinic, now the clinic stage research and we're fine-tuning the therapy side and we'll get we're learning how that works in the clinic and in the real world we will then bring that together those therapies together with our own compounds into a fully proprietary uh, platform in due course and so just so i'm clear the the intactogen class of families the new chemical entities that you're you're working on how, how exactly do they improve upon, for example, MDMA? MDMA is a, an incredible compound. It has a lot of benefits. I'm, I'm sure there's some setbacks. So what, what specifically are you guys looking to improve upon with these this other these new class of intactogens? Yeah, so again, we need to be careful about not, not uh, sharing the magic sauce here, but um, it's route of administration, it's onset, it's half-life so that we can get to a treatment window that we like. Um, and then also um, MDMA, it's, it's great, but it, it doesn't have, from a, from a pharmaceutical perspective, it doesn't have a perfect safety profile. We know it's, it's safe from a psychedelics perspective, but it doesn't have a perfect safety profile because it gets metabolized into different things. Um, it's not enough to stop anyone that's doing anything anywhere else, but just we, we are looking to then develop it on a novel scaffold. So we're not just taking the MDMA molecule and tweaking it. We've got developed brand new scaffolds that will be inter it will be potentially um, act like MDMA in a quicker window, quicker onset, shorter half-life, enabling us then to solve the biggest problem of all. What's the most valuable asset in the world? It's time. Right? It's time because time equals cost. If we can do something, if we can develop something that delivers the benefits of MDMA in a shorter window, reduces. You know, it's the path of least resistance, right? The infrastructure is set up, the global infrastructure is set up to deliver therapy or combined therapies in one or short, short, relatively short durations. If we can develop an intactogen that works in two hours, our clinics, other clinics, when it's delivered at scale, can deliver, treat, treat two people per room per day, as opposed to one person per room over a 24 hour period, because you're looking at an overnight stay. That's where the that's where the point of differentiation the point of differentiation comes in. Got it. And, and a lot of companies that are focused on NCEs right now are really looking to to partner up with um, big pharma. We saw that with Mindset uh, for Awaken. As far as your strategy for commercialization, is it your goal to take these NCEs all the way through clinical trials, or do you envision that you'll potentially uh, partner up with maybe a big pharma player to really push in all the funding to, to, to push them forward? So, so that's a great question. And I, I don't have an answer. There, there, are, there are multiple pathways forward for us. My job as the CEO is to deliver value for shareholders, uh, to deliver um, you know, improved therapeutic results for my clients, and to enable my team or my colleagues 
to have great careers. Um, so with the first one for value for shareholders, there are certain value inflection points that occur along the NCE development pathway. Usually that is after the successful phase one trial where safety has been proven. And then again, after a phase two B trial where efficacy has been proven. Um, and you know, right now the current plan is to, to, to stick with these compounds through all the way, but my job is to always be open to ways. Are there ways that I can partner with people to create additional value for shareholders, improved work environment for my colleagues and accelerate better outcomes and increase broadened availability to these life-changing therapeutics to as many people as possible. Got it. And I have a whole list of additional questions. I'm going to ask one more question, but I want to let the audience know. If you guys have any questions, drop them in the box. We've had a couple questions, but not many. If there's not questions, I'll probably continue with my, my own questions. But this is for the audience. So please feel free to ask any questions. Just drop them in the box. So so my, my final question potentially um, is really about around your licensing partnership business. You know, you mm -hmm. guys have once again, incredible results um, in your ketamine for AUD studies. Um, and, you know, obviously whatever methodology you're using in those clinical trials is extremely valuable and it's, and it's working. Um, but my, my skepticism around it is that, you know, you guys are looking to essentially license out those methods um, to other clinics and addiction centers that could potentially use them and hopefully get to have the same success as you guys are having. Um, I think that sounds great from just a rational perspective, but I think we often live in a irrational world where egos get in the way. And from the clinics and the addiction centers that I know, you know, they currently have access to ketamine, right? You guys don't have pat patents like ketamine. They could currently deliver ketamine for AUD off-label using their own methodologies. Maybe they don't get an 86% success rate. Maybe they get a 70 or a 60% success rate and they shouldn't be happy with that. But some, some of them I think will be a little bit adverse to sharing some of their revenue with someone else to use their methods when pride gets in the way and they think that they could just use their own methods and get a pretty good success rate. So I'd like you to just kind of address that. How do you plan to convince the market, the clinics and the addiction centers that it's the right approach to partner up with you guys and and have you guys had much traction? I know you said you guys were planning to roll that out maybe in the next few months, um, but just curious if you guys have had any traction with that strategy. Yeah, so, so if we take and sort of break it down a bit, wh why are we doing, why are we considering a licensing partnerships model? Um, the reason that we're doing that is we've got a three-stage commercialization plan for things that we develop in the R&D business. Stage one is in our own clinics. And with ketamine, we can commercialize ketamine in our clinics off-label in advance of securing marketing authorization. There is a, but there's a rate limiting factor because we're only going to have whatever the number of clinics is between 10 or between 15 and 20. And um, there's 15, 10 to 15,000 addiction clinics in the US alone. They tend, they generate about $40 billion a year revenue. They tend to operate at single digit margin, about 7%. And they tend to have a 75% failure rate. We believe in a few things in the company. One of them is to democratize psychedelics and democratization means on-label insurance, public health care support. The other thing we believe in is something called doing the bloody right thing. And it's doing the bloody right thing is making this methodology available to as many people as possible, even whilst we're off-label. So our licensing partnerships is a way to enable a large but deeply underperforming industry to become better at what it is that they're meant to be bloody doing anyway. So are we going to license it out to all 10 to 15,000 clinics? No, we're not. We just don't simply have the infrastructure to ensure quality control. Are we going to work with a select few partners that will enable us to maximize our impact? Yes, that's what we're going to do. We've hired the ex-head of sales for Vivitrol for the Western region of the US. He knows the owner of every addiction clinic personally in the Western region of the US and through the rest of the US through one degree of separation. So do we know the good actors and the adequate actors? Yes, we do. Are we gonna partner with the good actors who will be interested in delivering from a brand perspective, delivering Awaken, delivering the only methodology that's been proven in a clinical trial to have 86% efficacy that they can then use 
in their advertising materials. Yes, they're the people that we're going to work with. And obviously, we're going to have a contract in place that protects the IP. Then we're also going to train them in the delivery of the IP. And then we're going to provide them with a system that enables them to efficiently interact between their clients, their colleagues, their clients in the delivery of the service. And so all of that, we believe, will just create the path of least resistance for a certain cohort of clinics that are interested in investing in quality. And then we'd hope that when we've done the numbers, we'd hope that we'd make them more profitable and they can then reinvest and more effective, which you know they should want to do. And then they can reinvest that, pro that additional prop, uh, profit into acquiring talent, growing their business. And it's those companies then that will move into a leadership position, will gain market share and other people will want to follow in behind them. Love it. Well, you know, for the sake of all the, the millions of people that are suffering for AUD, I truly hope you guys are successful. The idea that we could potentially help 86% of the people suffering with this uh, condition is just absolutely tremendous. And then obviously you guys have the, the work you're doing on other uh, behavioral addiction uh, stuff as well. So, so really hope you guys have the absolute uh, best success with rolling out that program. So we do have a couple questions. One of them is actually sounds like it's kind of a joke, but I think it also does get to kind of a, a misconception in the industry. And it says, you know, how about ketamine addiction? Right. And I think what they're saying is, you know, how do we ensure um, people don't get addicted to ketamine? So, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts as far as, you know, the addictiveness of ketamine and, and really how what you guys are doing won't proliferate any sort of ketamine addiction pandemic uh, epidemic. Uh, absolutely happy to. Uh, hey, Joachim, um, good, good question. Um, so first of all, let's just take a look at ketamine, right? Ketamine is on the WHO list of essential medicines. It is one of the most widely prescribed painkillers in the world. It is safe. Um, it was developed by the American army as an alternative in Vietnam, as an alternative to morphine. It's called the buddy painkiller. Um, it doesn't interfere with the breathing system or the blood system. So you tend not, it tends, you don't tend to overdose from ketamine. Yes, there are stories of people become addicted, becoming addicted to it recreationally. Um, but the amount of ketamine that we use, we use a sub-anesthetic dose three times over the space of two to two and a half months during the treatment program. That is not a sufficient volume of ketamine to develop any resistance to it, or indeed to become addicted to it. And again, it is an incredibly safe medicine. It's on the WHO list of essential medicines. And we're using ketamine because it is particularly helpful for what we want to do. We are developing those combined therapeutics, drugs and therapies used in sequence, using drugs to disrupt the brain circuits that house the behaviors that drive the addiction. And ketamine does three things, and it's really important that people understand that that's very useful for us. There's a strong disassociative effect with ketamine in the sub-anesthetic sub, sub dosing. And in a recreational setting, that means you get an out-of-body experience looking down at yourself in the here and now. But with our treatment program where you have a prep session, ketamine session, and an integration session, in the prep session, we bring the issues to the surface. And so during the disassociative effect, people get to look back on the totality of their life and the times at which they may have made decisions, poor decisions, or had events in their lives that increase the probability of them becoming addicted. Second thing that ketamine does, and this is really important for certain types of addiction, is ketamine disrupts memories. So memories are dynamic. As we call memories up, that um, we they get replayed and they actually get affected and adjusted before they're laid back down. If you bring those some and some types of addiction are particularly driven by 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 memory. So some of the memories of an early exposure to gambling, an early exposure to pornography, the sight of a pub, the smell of a pint, those trigger the predicted rewards that come through and the brain sort of short circuits itself. So if we can bring those memories to the surface during the prep session, during the ketamine session, those memories are disrupted as they're laid back down and they become less impactful on the individual and less impactful on their psyche and therefore less likely to trigger that short circuit. The second thing, the third thing that ketamine does is neurogenesis or neuroplasticity. A lot of people are probably familiar with in the psychedelic space. That's really important. Your brains up until the age of 18 or 19 are brilliant things. They're growing new neural connections. After that, they focus on being efficient, trimming all those connections. That's why you get locked in repeated behaviors, repeated behaviors, repeated addictions, addictive behaviors, external stressors come on, short circuit, just go back to the learned behavior. Ketamine disrupts that, enables us to recalibrate the brain. But then during the integration session, 
you, that with a qualified psychotherapist, integrate those key learnings from the disassociative effect, integrate the, 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 the coping mechanisms to really develop much more robust and dynamic coping mechanisms during that much more open part of the brain. That's why ketamine is really good. So ketamine is a safe medicine, doesn't interfere with the breathing system, doesn't interfere with the blood system, does three things that are really important to us in the context of making psychotherapy more effective in the treating of addiction. We don't use enough ketamine, we believe, to develop any type of addiction or resistance. And our approach has been proven to work in a phase two AB combined trial. Yeah, and I'll just add on that, you know, this is not take-home therapy, right? So the opioid situation came up because, you know, they were able to take it home and abuse it, take too much of it. And in, in what Awaken is doing, it is done in a clinic with only a certain amount of, of sessions. So not really a situation where people could take it home and, and take more than they, they, they should be. That's correct. We have a treatment protocol that has an initial medical assessment from a consultant level doctor. Then ketamine is prescribed if they pass the IMA, administered by a nurse in a clinic with the psychotherapy, prep session, active session, integration session delivered in a clinic by a consultant level psychologist. So this is medical grade assist, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And so we'll go to the next question from Adam T. Um, in regards to ketamine, um, he says, are patients coming in to get, how often are patients coming in to get dosed in the study per clinic vi visit? How long do the therapeutic benefits typically last? Yeah, so great, great question, Adam. Um, so let's just talk about the clinic, right? Because that's where the rubber hits the road and that's where we're, we're treating people. Um, so we treat people more for addiction but also anxiety, depression, PTSD in, in our clinics. We've got different treatment protocols for addiction and the other mental health conditions, but just very, very high level. It's, as I mentioned before, it's, it's, about, a, it's about 11 sessions. So an initial medical assessment, a prep session, a ketamine session, and an integration session. And there's three of those blocks. So prep, ketamine, integration, prep, ketamine, integration, prep, nine in total, and then a closeout session. And that is typically over about two to two and a half months, just depending upon the individual's um, schedule. Perfect. And then next question from Adrian Joe. Uh, since AUDs may be comorbid with other addiction indications, such as gambling, opioids, depression, what are considerations to keep in mind for patients with just AUD versus AUD patients with comorbidities? Um, well, so... If we just put this in order of context, there's 400 million people suffer from alcohol use disorder and 40 million people suffer from opioid use disorder. So there's 10x with alcohol use disorder. So the comorbidity is not the biggest, the biggest challenge. I think the comorbidity between alcohol use disorder and addiction in general and depression is, is more significant. And so part of the initial medical assessment is to determine which is the which is the which condition, if this is even the right term to use, is in the driving seat. And then we make a determination as to which treatment track we put three people through or down in our in our clinics. And for addiction, we have a treatment track that is CBT based and is highly manualized. And for anxiety, depression, and PTSD, we have a treatment track that is ACT based and is more formulation driven. But that and is a that's a yeah. determination made by a quali qualified psychiatrist in each of our clinics. And if I recall correctly, Anthony, I think in your phase two trial with ketamine for AUD, I think you did look also at the comorbidity with depression. I know you reduced fatality. You know, obviously suicidality is a big part of AUD. Do you want to discuss any kind of, of the, the, the non-AUD other indications, like any of your learnings from the research that you did in your phase two trial? Yeah, ha happy to do so. So the phase three trial, sorry, the phase two B trial, I beg your pardon. Um, there was the secondary endpoints um, were liver function. So people who would typically uh, be sober 2% of the time, so seven, sober seven days a year, there's typically a probability, a one in eight probability of fatality for people who consume that much alcohol in, in, any, in the 12 months and in the next 12 months. And uh, because we reduced that from 2% or increased the sobriety from 2% to 86%, led through to a significant improvement in liver function, which was one of the secondary endpoints. Um, led through that converted to a reduction in probability of fatality from one in eight 
to 1 in 80 in the 12 months post-treatment, which is a significant improvement. Um, we also saw an, um, a statistically significant improvement in depression and a statistically significant, and I always struggle to pronounce this word, so work with me on it, in anhedema, which is the ability to enjoy life. So there was positive results across primary endpoint and also the secondary endpoints. Great. Next question from Yakim. Um, he's w wondering if you could treat ketamine addiction with ketamine. Um, well, <laughs> mirror, mirror within a mirror. Um, we have not. We are not currently looking at ketamine addiction. Um, what we are looking at the primary indications that we are focused on is alcohol use disorder that affects 400 million people and for which the current standard of care is poor and behavioural addictions, which affect over 800 million people and for which the current standard of care is also poor. Awesome. And I think we are at the end of our questions and perfect. We think we're at the end of our time as well. So really uh, appreciate everyone attending. Anthony, you did a great job. You made it through the investor hot seat. No, thank you so much. Hope everyone has a great evening. Anthony, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. We'll have you on next time as well once you get a little bit of your phase three results. Uh, absolutely happy to. Justin, it was, Justin, it was, it was great fun. Thank you very much. And listen, thanks for all the questions, everyone. Uh, keep me on my toes. Really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, look, just, just, just stay in touch with us. If anyone has any questions, just email me, anthony.tennyson at awakenlifesciences.com. I'm happy to follow up with anyone on any questions. Thank you, guys. Have a good evening. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye.